Greetings, fellow imps. I'm Imp Fossil Tom Hensky, and I'd like to welcome you to From Nowhere to Now Here, where incarnate memories prevail. Like many incoming first years, I entered the university a blank canvas. You get it, nowhere. But four years later, I grew to now here. And when I look back at that transformation, it was the friendships that I built through the imps that were a huge part of that growth. But where did everyone end up? I'm going to take us on a journey to find them, to catch up with the friends we've lost touch with. And in doing so, my mission is to rekindle these amazing relationships. Nation, we are back. I've got a fun one today. Kevin Cook in the Imp House. What's going on, my man? Not much. Just enjoying that ever sunny, ever blue sky weather in Cleveland, Ohio. Wow, you got to stop partying so hard, Cleveland, Ohio. You went from you went from Charlottesville to Cleveland. Where are you going to next? You know, once you've been to those two places, there's really nowhere else to go. So, you know, I, I started off in Cleveland, uh, had to get down south to see Charlottesville. Tough to come back, but Cleveland's home. And I, I think for me, it's uh, it's as good as it gets. So you started off in Cleveland. Take me through it. Where'd you go to high school? Sure. Um, I went to St. Ignatius High School in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I'm actually from Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is a suburb right outside of Cleveland. Um, in St. Ignatius, a uh, Jesuit school, uh, went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school. Uh, I'm one of five children my folks had. Everyone went to Catholic school for grade school, high school, and college, except for me. Um, so what I decided is, as far as they were concerned, uh, I went to the Our Lady of Virginia, so that qualifies as a Catholic school for me, so I can check that box for people. Um, thank God it wasn't a, a big issue for my Catholic family, but um, that, that's where I, I started off. And, you know, if you would have asked me when I was 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, would I end up at the University of Virginia? I would have said no. It's funny. It's so, like the, uh, the common thing we hear from a lot of the imps that come on the podcast that... Virginia either wasn't on their radar screen or wasn't their first choice. And uh, boy, did that change. Wow, that's great. All right, cool. Did your parents come down and visit a lot while you were here? They did. Um, I, I was actually um, a member of the football team my four years at the university. And my folks were great about uh, my dad would work his vacation to have Fridays off. Cleveland's about 450 miles from Charlottesville. Uh, back then, I uh, was slightly after horse and buggy, but before 70 mile an hour speed limit. And uh, it would take them about eight hours to get to school. And the way it worked was for football, even for home games, we would stay at a hotel the night before the game. So we would have a, a very light practice around three o'clock. Um, but then from three o'clock until after the game was over, we were off limits to our parents. So in order for them to see me for, for much more than just after the game, they would drive down. They would get up at about four o'clock in the morning and drive down to Charlottesville so we could grab lunch and, and spend an hour or two together. And they drove everywhere. I think they were at every ACC stadium and drove to all of them. And they would do, you know, a weekend trip to Atlanta, Georgia. Fortunately, back then, Miami wasn't in the conference. Florida State wasn't in the conference, but they were very supportive uh, of, of my time at Virginia and really appreciate that now as a, as a parent myself and just the, the support they gave and the time they took. Did they, when you were playing, was the Omni the hotel that they had you stay in? What was the hotel du jour at that point? Well, the hotel du jour changed du jour um, all the time. Uh, we started off back in the day, we were actually on Aston Mountain, okay? So we'd be about 25, 30 minutes out. Uh, the, day, the morning of the game, we'd get a police escort. So you would get from Afton Mountain to Scott Stadium in about seven minutes because you'd be going about 100 miles an hour. Um, that was my first year. Uh, we were not very good my first year. Um, we were actually abysmal my first year. 
And I think um, after that season, I don't know if it's George Wells deciding that we're never staying in a hotel like that after a year like that again, or it was the state trooper saying, we're not getting up that early in the morning to drive 100 miles an hour for a team that, that, that's that bad. So we moved from there to um, different hotels on 29. We were downtown. We were never at the Omni, but unfortunately, um, we were off limits. We weren't allowed to use the phone, and we pretty much had to stay self-contained. Um, that would be like hurting cats for some of the guys on the team. And there was too much ingress and egress at the downtown hotels to keep us there um, for a long time. We were actually at, geez, I forget the name of it. There's an on-campus hotel that was right near Darden. And we stayed there one year, which was awesome. And uh, it was a, a little conference center and it only it would hold about what we were, which was about you know 75 to 100 people. Uh, but every year it was something different, Tom. And, and again, every year there was a reason why it was something different. Uh, some of those that probably can't be uh, broadcast or published. You were talking about George Welsh. Any good George Welsh stories? Um, I, I think uh, if you ask any of his former players, they would say there are lots of good George Welsh stories. Um, I, I think... Uh, appreciate them you, you probably had to be around him as much as the guys on the team um, I think he you know the, the thing about George and, and I, I said this to uh, a former teammate of mine Tony Covington who who does a uh, more of a football podcast uh, George Walsh was one of those guys that at, at 18 19 20 years old and I know you, you play soccer at, at Virginia and it's an interesting dynamic I think when you get to college and you're interacting with coaches there relative to your high school coaches because high school coaches, it's, it's always Mr. or coach. And you realize you're, you're very much a teenager and they're very much the adult in the room. And as you get to college, by the time you get to be third or fourth year, you start, you know, becoming an adult yourself. And you start realizing those coaches are only about 15 to 25 years older than you. Um, and, and, and you're a little bit more confident in yourself and how you handle those relationships. And I would say with, with George, he was a different breed for an 18, 19 year old kid. And he had a, a younger coaching staff that really hit it off with folks from a recruiting point of view and in terms of bridging the gap between George's, you know, kind of age and, and the era he was from and those of us that back then in the hip 80s, right? Um, what, what we thought was cool and the things that could, could uh, would be exciting for us and would, would attract us to a school. I'll tell you, as the years go on, um, as funny as some of the George stories were, and some of those were just generational, um, just he was from a different era than us. But uh, he, he was, in my humble opinion, one of the top college coaches ever. He rebuilt Navy, he rebuilt Virginia, and he rebuilt them so they were sustainable programs. And I think people have seen ever since George left Virginia, it's hard, you know? Um, it, it's hard to be very, very good at sports at Virginia. You're, you're recruiting a different type of student athlete and there just aren't a lot of them. He and I did not always see eye to eye. Um, he, he, my second year, I was a returning starter um, I had gotten uh, slightly overweight my uh, freshman spring. Uh, Domino's extra thick crust with sausage and a Coke every night, seven days a week, will turn a six foot, 170 pound cornerback into a six foot, 210 pound safety. Um, playing intramural basketballs, which was not allowed, um, is also didn't help. And I happened to get a Charlie horse in the intramural semifinals the day before we ran 40s. A very good team. Don Bukowski was on the team, uh, Daryl Hammond. Um, we, we actually, we, all Division I football players are wannabe Division I basketball players. Um, but I got a Charlie horse. So I came to Virginia. Um, at my size, I needed to be able to run. And, and I've could run a four or five forty, sometimes a little better. Uh, that spring, I ran a four nine, 
So I was running behind some of the linebackers and maybe even some of the linemen. So George uh, mandated that I weigh in the next season at 189 pounds, not 190, not 185, 189 pounds. And at University Hall, there was a big scale right outside the coach's locker room on the way to the training room. And I had to weigh in there before summer camp started. I weighed 188 pounds. He told me that I would weigh in every Thursday that season. And if I was above 189, I wouldn't play. So season goes on. I end up starting. I end up putting together a pretty good season. At midway through the season, uh, my teammate Keith McMeans and I were kind of battling it out for interception leading the country. But what I was doing to get through is I would quit eating every day at lunchtime or every Wednesday at lunchtime. And I wouldn't eat again until Thursday dinner because I just didn't want to do it, didn't want to risk not playing. And I would always go there and I would, would wear the compression shorts. I'm sure it scared people in the hallway, but I'd walk out of the locker room and all I'd have is compressions on because I wanted to weigh as light as I could. And every week, preseason, first five weeks of the season, I weigh 189 or less, but it's killing me. I mean, I just, I, I, I go Thursday night and I just eat a ton. So finally, I just got fed up with it. I was just having a bad week and I had to go weigh in. And I didn't bother stripping down to my compression. I ate Wednesday dinner. I ate breakfast Thursday. I think I stopped at 7-Eleven, got a big gulp and like a pound of peanut M&Ms and ate those before practice. And at this point, Keith and I are literally tied for the lead in interceptions in the country. The team's doing pretty well. And I just, again, I just had a, a rough week. So I'm walking out of the locker room. I've got shorts. I've got a sweatshirt on. I've got shoes on. George comes over and he says, we're going to weigh in now. I'm like, great. So he says, well, don't you want to take that stuff off? And I'm like, sure. So I get down to just a pair of shorts. I step on the scale, 193 pounds. And I'm thinking to myself while this is going on, I want him to have to go to the media and tell them, yeah, I decided to bench Kevin because he's four pounds overweight. And he looks at me, he looks at the scale, he looks at me again, looks at the compressions and says, well, your clothes are probably about four or five pounds. We're good. And after that, I never waited again. So that's my George Welsh story um, for me. That way it protects the innocent, it protects anyone else, um, and, and it protects him. And again, I, I just I have a tremendous amount of respect for George the older I get. Um, just what a great coach he was. And, and, and in his own way, he was consistent. Um, the one thing about him is he treated everybody the same. And, and he approached the game. He approached life the same way. So you always knew what you were getting, right, wrong, or indifferent. You always knew what you were getting. And again, as a football coach, as I think about playing in high school, playing in college, having had a couple of sons who have played at the collegiate level, he, he really, I, I've been blessed. I, I, I played high school football for a guy who will probably go down as one of the greatest, if not the greatest high school coaches in the state of Ohio and, and one of the top 20 in the country. Um, and I played for a Hall of Fame coach in college. I can't ask for anything more from an athletic point of view. That's awesome. So as an alum that played football, uh, what's going through your head as to what we've seen the last five or 10 years from UVA football? Um, you know, I, I, I think um, for me, it's tougher now than it was before. The game's changed. I think college football has changed. And I think for what the University of Virginia offers a student athlete, I think it's incomparable. I don't think there's anyone else out there that can do it. Um, and and I, I say that, full disclosure, with a son who's on the roster at Notre Dame. And, and, and I have the utmost respect for Notre Dame. And Notre Dame is a year-in, year-out, power five, top five program in the country with academics that, again, are second to none. I still believe my, my UVA bias is UVA is unique. Um, I think George Welch and his coaching staff tapped into that. I think they went and they got a lot of guys that back in the day we didn't have this, Tom, but they got a bunch of two and three star or no star guys who had a chip on their shoulder, who wanted to be challenged academically, 
who wanted to be challenged athletically, and they were truly one of the first player development programs in the country. And I think they did that under George. Um, I think over the years, um, hey, winning the ACC was a lot easier when Virginia Tech, Miami, Florida State weren't in the league. That's just a fact, okay? Uh, very proud to say I played on the first ever ACC championship team at the University of Virginia. But I think as an acknowledgement to the folks that came after me, hey, it was a tough conference. But every year, you probably had two or three teams you had to contend with. Maryland, North Carolina, Duke one year was good, and Clemson was always, you know, Clemson was Clemson, if you will. Um, so I think what's happened in the last five, 10 years, some of it, the, the competitive dynamic has changed for sure. It's definitely an arms race. I think recently with NIL, you know, the cat's out of the bag. Yeah, it is a big business. Um, now people are getting paid, um, and at least everyone knows about it, where before probably it was still going on, but people just didn't know. And I do think, again, with, with George, he sounded a little bit like an old timer. He gave that program consistency from 1981, 82 to 2001, 20 years. How many coaches have we had since he's left? And, and to me, that, that's not an indictment of those coaches. I just think that the, the era has changed, that the game changed. The, um, it was really nice. And again, I know you played soccer and, and Virginia soccer. Back, I think they won their first national championship when we were in school there. So, I mean, you talk about um, a prolific program. Um, you could play high school sports be a really good player, get recruited, and not have 500,000 people follow you on Twitter, have your highlight on ESPN, have people critiquing you, second-guessing you, Monday morning quarterbacking you, and you could just kind of exist in a, in a bubble, if you will, where you could focus on being the best player you could be, being the best teammate you could be, and then again, going to UVA saying, hey, I got to focus on my academics. Oh, and oh, by the way, mom and dad, number one party school by Playboy for the second year in a row, right? So <laughs> there was a lot. Yeah. Of <laughs> and, and, and so to me, um, I look at the last five to 10 years, and I think they've been searching and trying to find the right fit. I really give a lot of credit. There's some guys, there's some consistency over the years, a guy named Jerry Capone, who's just a rock star. He was there. Um, I, I think Jerry was just had been a GA and was it was kind of a uh, coach's uh, uh, George Walsh's kind of top administrative assistant and and Jerry gets Virginia football more than anybody and he's just been constant and he has always made the the players over the years feel connected. Chris Slade's back there now. Sean Moore's involved. Um, so again, I, I think maybe Virginia lost their way a little in kind of trying to stay connected as they, they moved through the years. But I don't think that was purposeful. And again, I just think nowadays with social media, with all this focus on recruiting, and, and no one wants to do player development anymore. Kids don't want to hear, come to our school, redshirt for a year. In the year we were number ranked number one in the country, um, I was one of, we had, I think, 25 players in that class. I was one of four that played as true freshmen. So we didn't have redshirt years left. I believe the other 21 all redshirted, all ended up starting or contributing for three to four years. And they were the nucleus of that number one team. That just doesn't happen anymore. You've got to recruit a kid. You got to give them the sense that they're going to compete for a starting job day one. And no one wants to play scout team. No one wants to redshirt. And so I just think, you look at the arms race, you look at, I think Virginia has been very true to being a top academical institution in the country and a top athletic program in the country. I, I jokingly say, yeah, the worst thing that's happened to Virginia football in the last five to 10 years is baseball, lacrosse, soccer, swimming, tennis, you know, every sport, basketball, every sport has kind of gotten national acclaim in that period. So I'm really excited for Tony Elliott. Um, I'm, I'm really excited for the energy around the program. I appreciate what Bronco did to get the program to, to the, the spot he did, but I'm really hoping we can, if you will, break through. And I, I really believe there's no reason why we can't year in, year out, 
compete for the top spot in our division, when things break the right way, play for an ACC championship in and, and, and a you know, New Year's Six Bowl, and there's no reason we can't win seven to nine games every year and still graduate 90-plus percent of our, our players and have them go on and be all Americans in professions other than NFL football. Right. And that, to me, would be success. Right. That should be the goal, right? That, that should be the goal That's, for sure. Take me through the early first couple of years at UVA, first and second year. What was that like? What do you remember back to that? Uh, first impression, homesick. Uh, what, what am I doing here? Um, because there's no social media, because there wasn't, you know, texts and phones, I got dropped off August 1st, 1986. Didn't eat for two days. Uh, I told them, you know, I listed myself at 6'2", 195 uh, in the high school program, showed up at six foot 170. Uh, I, I understand George asked somebody if that was really me, um, but I hadn't eaten. I didn't shrink because of my homesickness. I actually fibbed about my height. Probably wasn't the first time that happened. But I got there and I, I didn't know anybody. I truly didn't know anybody at all. And the one thing I thank God for to this day, they used to put all of us in a locker room, just the freshmen. I could not have asked for a better freshman class. The recruits, the walk-ons, for some reason, and I think if you talk to anyone from my class, there is a bond and a brotherhood there that is just unbelievable. And, and it doesn't matter if you're from the North, the South, Black, White, Catholic, Protestant. We all just hit it off. And I think it's one of the reasons we had that success. All that being said, there was a train that ran behind the 7-Eleven. About the second day there, I'm thinking to myself, I've never ridden a train before. And I don't know if that goes east, west, north, south. But in a couple of days, I'm probably not going to care. And can I just hobo my way on the back of a car and get out of here? Because it was hot. I knew nobody. And it just, I, I, I visited five schools. That's what you're allowed to do. And to be quite truthful, and this worried my mom, when I told her I was going to Virginia, she said, well, is that the school you, you love the, the most? And I said, no, it's actually the one I hate the least. And she <laughs> thought that was a terrible way to pick a school. But just for whatever reason, you know, again, back in the day, if someone called your house and said, we want to pay for your college education, no one was saying, well, let's see if I get better offers, right? Your parents were saying, yes, say yes to that, say yes to that, say yes to that. So I got there. I was really a fish out of water. I was fortunate to meet those friends, um, those teammates. The upperclassmen were great. Um, I, I listened to your podcast with Scott Doctor the other day, and Scott was my era. Um, and, and Scott brought up an individual, Craig Fielder. And Craig was my big brother on the football team. So when I got recruited, um, I was going to be pre-med. So they hooked me up with Jim Dombrowski because Jim was was pre-med, who was an All-American tackle and, and one of the greatest players in UVA history. Uh, he and Ray Roberts, I think, are just iconic tackles. Um, Ray was a teammate. And, and, and again, both of those guys, they'd say, All-American players, better people, okay? And just great guys. Um, but I went around with Jim to some of his classes. And then um, that evening, Jim had something to do. So I actually got hooked up with Craig and Craig spent the rest of the time. And Craig took me under his wing my entire freshman year there and then my second year there until he passed away. Um, I went home with him, um, you know, uh, several of the te my teammates and I um, went and visited him when he was in the Bethesda hospital. I'll never forget the phone call I got the spring of my first year when he went into remission or he, he came out of remission and he got uh, cancer again, but he played my freshman year, and, and he was a godsend, and he was one of the reasons I ended up at Virginia, because I had such a great time with him, and he really made sure during that homesick period that that I felt integrated and felt a part of the team, so, um, you know, really, the, the first year was rough. We were three and eight. Um, the joke going there, we actually lost to William and Mary. I played on that team. I'll tell you, I'm proud as hell of the ACC championship and playing in a New Year's Bowl, first time ever. But I got to own up to, you know, William and Mary. And the joke going those days, we were so bad. It was, you know, hey, do you think Virginia will 
Pete William and Mary this week? And the answer was, well, if Bill doesn't show up, they might have a chance, right? So um, the season was horrible. At Christmas, I called my high school coach. I said, hey, can you reach out to a couple of the schools that were interested? I'm thinking about transferring. My folks said, give it a year. Um, he said, give it a year. I went back, and again, it's just the people there, the coaches, the professors, um, the, 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 my friends there. Um, some of the people who, again, at the time, I didn't know, but Dave Cardenas, who was at, at Imp and was the king a couple of years ahead of me, um, he was a guy, Scott Urch, another Imp. You know, some of the people in the, in the UVA community who were there supporting me and, and had a sense that maybe it was going a little bit rougher for the, the Ohio kid um, and really reached out and, and made me feel comfortable and made me feel at home. And so once I got through that first year and came back the second year, second year was like a fairy tale. The second year was, you know, everyone thought we'd be bad. We start off rough. We beat Virginia Tech 14-13 in Charlottesville after they beat us by 30 points the prior year. And we end up going to a bowl game. I ended up having, you know, my best season. I, I hurt my shoulder my freshman year, and I didn't get it taken care of until I was forced to midway through my junior year. But I had an all-conference, all-American type season, and it was just, we went to a bowl game, we won, and, you know, Craig died that year, which was tough. I mean, that, that, that was really a downer, and he died in the hotel the night before a game. I mean, it was really kind of surreal. Um, but in some ways, that was a rallying point for us, and, and his family, his mom, his dad, his brothers, his sisters, they were just such a great family. And, and um, you know, that, that, that definitely puts a little bit of a, a, a damper on that season. But from a football point of view, it was great. From a school point of view, I, I, I hit my stride. You know, I, I felt like that was home. And again, that, that class I played with was incredible. Um, I had some upperclassmen. I actually lived with a bunch of fifth-year guys my second year. Um, we, we weren't supposed to live off campus, but um, academically, I did well enough um, that they let me do that. So I lived with a bunch of older guys. So I was kind of like the little brother in the house. Um, and, and some of my closest friends to this day are those people. And, and, and one of them was uh, Keith Mattioli, who was a wide receiver, uh, walk-on player, great player there. I ended up having a tryout with the Steelers. Uh, I, I don't think I saw the kid drop a pass. I mean, and, and, and just one of those guys that would wear you out in practice, but a great guy and another guy that, that took me under his wing and, and put up with some of my shenanigans. And he and Mike and John Fetzko um, re really looked out for me. But um, didn't know it at the time, Keith happened to be a Zoomer. I didn't know that until he started not letting me come with him certain events and certain, certain he'd, he'd fib to me about where he was going. It really bothered me. I thought maybe I had, I had irritated him or there was something going on. And again, at this point, I, I, I'm from Ohio, okay? I, I don't get why people paint on beautiful brick buildings, um, things like Imp and Z and, and, and uh, what is it, that other, like the infinity thing? I still haven't figured that one out, okay? Um, wasn't a math guy there, so I figured I'd better stay away from those buildings. Um, and I just didn't get it. I didn't get the coat and tie uh, your fifth. I did. I don't even know if they're still allowed to do that, but it was always fun fourth quarter of that game to look up in the stands and just see people literally being carried out of the stadium um, because they had a little too much fun. Um, but it started dawning on me that there was something going on in Keith's life. And then I realized later on when I became a member of the Imp Society that Keith was a Z. And he's a Imp Nation. He's a, they can be very, very good people. They can be. And, and he was an example of that. Okay, he was an example of that. Um, All right. Well, we're so going to have to we're going to have to edit that last comment out of the podcast because we can't. <laughs> we, we had a brand to uphold here, Kev. Come on, man. You can't <laughs> you can't be saying bad, good things about the Zoomers on my podcast, man. We're not going there. So I'm going to. Well, sorry, well, Doy. We're going to we're going to get that one out. So tell me then. What, you were talking about your academics. What did you major in? I think it was English, right? Well. Um, Remember, if we, we hit pause and rewind, I was pre-med, right? Because that's what I was going to do. And that's why I went with Jim Dombrowski. So I signed up for organic chemistry, first semester, first year. Got a C plus in the class, I think. And the highest score I got on the 20 question quizzes 
and 40 question tests was like literally like a 50%, okay? And I thought to myself, and my father's a physician, and I, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And I just remember having this conversation with myself of, it's great I got a C plus with the curve, but would I want me taking care of me if I knew that my raw score was I basically got about half the things right? So I stopped taking chemistry my second semester. And I've always loved to read. I've always loved to write. Um, and so I figured with football was, again, I, I didn't plan on playing as a true freshman. And that started taking up a lot of time. And so I just figured I'd want to major in something that I enjoyed doing and that I was, I, I, I thought I was pretty good at because if I, I could get that type of work done more quickly. So I did major in English and, and really enjoyed doing that. Um, and uh, had some great professors there, took a lot of uh, Shakespeare courses and just a lot of literature courses, which, um, you know, really for me was a lot of fun. And so with this path, then you get tapped by the imps and do you remember what year that was? Is that second year, third year, fourth year? When when about was that? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, I, I do remember. And again, I thinking back to you know Scott Docker, and I think any any Division One athlete probably has a similar story, right? Um, so first year, good for me as a player because I played a lot and played fairly well. Bad for the team. Second year, good for player, good for team. Third year come in, returning starter. I think Keith led the, uh, Matty, or McMeans led the country in interceptions. I believe I was third. Uh, a lot of expectations for the team coming off an eight and four year. A lot of guys coming back. Um, I had a bad shoulder. It was getting to the point where if I sneezed, it'd come out of joint. If I tackled somebody, it would come out of joint. Then when I hit the ground, it would go back into joint. So I made it about three and a half games. And then I, I had to get my shoulder reconstructed. So I ended up having surgery, having to leave the team, um, basically wasn't allowed to be around the team while I was rehabbing. And, and I, uh, as I said, George and I didn't always get along real well. And about five minutes after um, I found out I had to have season-ending surgery, he came in and the first words out of his mouth is, you're not allowed to talk to the media until I say so. So I was basically um, put, put, put uh, on ice for the next year. Um, and so with that, yeah, it was a tough time. Um, I, I know Scott referenced, you know, in his career coming back from some injuries and I don't care how much your teammates welcome you. I don't care how much you want to be a part of the team. When you're hurt, you're not a part of the team. And you know that more than anyone. Um, we had a tremendous, tremendous training uh, staff and, and Scott mentioned it and I will too. Ethan Saliba was a rock star. He still is. But without Ethan, Joe Geek, those guys ran a great training room. And their whole goal was to get you better. Ethan's uh, wife, Sue Foreman, at the time was there. And again, I can't say enough stuff. I went down to UVA for a spring game reunion and through a accident at home where I was uh, trying to dunk on a six-foot hoop, I had some stitches in my head. And uh, I needed to get them out. And I walked into the training room. I said, hey, I'm not sure the insurance covers it, but can you get these out for me? And she, it was like being ported back to 1988. He just put me on the table, took them out. And again, can't, can't say enough about it. But that was a really dark time for me. It was just I was, I was uh, isolated. I was lonely. I felt detached. I, I kind of felt almost like I did my first year. And, and, and then, you know, the impact. Me. And, and it. it I was so oblivious, Tom, because I I knew Dave Cardenas through football. I knew Scott Ertz a little bit, but Scott was a fourth year when I was a first year. I knew Dave was an imp, but he never really talked to me a lot about it. And when he introduced me to people, he didn't tell me that connection. So Ken Cheeseman was one of those people. And Dave was two years ahead of me. Ken was a year ahead of me. So Ken and I got to know each other my first and second year. And I would see him around Bryant Hall. And Ken was involved in a lot of community activity stuff as well. And he'd ask me to volunteer. He'd say, I need a football guy. Can you do this? And Ken, just a great guy, very good guy. And, and so I started seeing him and hanging out with him. But again, never put the imp thing together. And I don't remember my exact tapping event or, or the joke they played on me. 
but I know he was involved and it had something to do with, um, you know, I know some people said, oh yeah, they told me I flunked my drug test or they told me, you know, I had an honor violation and it's like, well, geez, if someone told me that, I'd be like, if I fell for it, wouldn't they think less of me if they thought I was really worried about those things? So Ken, it was some kind of, hey, I need your help doing something. And it was funny because once I got tapped, and I saw the other people that were in the group. It's like, it started clicking for me. It's like, yeah, oh, your I, aha. I it's like your aha moment, right? Everything fit. Well, well, and going back to my good Zoomer friend, it was like, I would see him out and about with people that made no sense for him to be with. And because they like to be quote unquote secretive, it would always be like, well, that's really odd, you know? Is that their bookie? Uh, do they have some kind of drug or alcohol problem? I mean, you start thinking the worst. Where with the imps, I think you're right. It's like that aha moment. And you're like, oh, this is how the world comes together. And the coolest part about it for me was it made me realize that the little world I had lived in of being a college football player at the University of Virginia was so microscopic. And it opened up so many new avenues, so many new roads, so many relationships with quality people who were from different walks of life, different parts of the country. And it was just fun. I mean, it, it really, I went from being in a real dark space to saying, oh my gosh, I got to make the most out of my next three semesters here because there's so much more here than I ever thought there could be. And it was just, there were just some great people in the group. Um, we brought, brought Byron Halsey was in the group then. Uh, Matt London came in, Craig Wood, Kristen Sheehan, Don Bryant, who was a, a very good player on the women's hoop team, and just uh, Jerry Bias, who uh, uh, was uh, in there uh, with me. And, and I was the king and Jerry was my queen. So we were way ahead of our time back in the 80s, if you will. And again, JB, just a great guy, just a multi-talented, smart guy. And that's that just, again, you just start realizing there's so many other neat people and being a division one athlete, it's hard and there isn't a lot of free time, but the imps allowed me to expand those relationships and expand my view of the university. And as much as I was enjoying UVA through my first two years, if I were to look back at the end of my second year, it really started kind of becoming more meaningful. And really I started understanding the opportunity I'd been afforded with that tapping by the imps. I don't mean to make it sound like, oh, what a watershed moment, but without that, I met people, you know, people in my dorm. I, you know, I was an old dorm tent guy um, my first year. And, you know, I met people through that, but you just really don't, I, I wasn't a fraternity guy. So I was, you know, my, I viewed football as my fraternity. So if I wasn't living with you um, and you weren't on the team, I really wasn't ha having a chance to spend a lot of time. So, you know, I mean, even, you know, other athletes, if you didn't see them in Bryant Hall, it wasn't like you were going to hang out with them. You know, we got to know the basketball guys fairly well because Matt London played both sports um, and he was he was an imp. Um, Mark Cook, who was not an imp, but Mark played football and basketball. Terry Kirby obviously did. So we got to know those guys a bit. But other than that, as you know, it's a pretty self-contained world. Um, and, and so the imps really opened that door for me. And, and again, I just, as, as you reached out so we could do this, some of the names that came up from the past, as you get older, you're like, how did I remember that? How did I know that person? And it just reminded me of all the great people and all the great times we had that gave you a release from football, from the academics, and put you in a different, if you will, friend group that led to some really fun, memorable times that would have been missed had it not happened. Let me ask you this. So you're, you're having this whole experience, right? You're having the football experience, the imp experience, the academic experience, towards your third and fourth year, what did you think you were going to do for a living when you left? Oh, I wish I thought that far ahead. Um, I, I was really trying to just live in the moment. I, I thought, you know, doing the English thing, I thought maybe being a lawyer, maybe going to business school. Um, my third year, I, I, I was really, again, I was really blessed. When, when football was not going the way I wanted it to because of the injury, I get tapped by the imps. I get a letter in my apartment inviting me to this dinner on a Friday night. And I, again, I'll never forget. I reach out to Dave Cardenas and I'm like, hey, I got this thing. And I'm not doing it. It's Friday night. I'm going out, going drinking with my guys. I'm not doing it. It's something. I want me to go to the Rotunda. 
for dinner. I got to wear a tie. I'm not doing it. And he said in a very polite way, but if I think back on it, it was, hey, idiot, is that the great Harrington Award dinner? And I said, yeah, that's what it is. And he said, you have to go. I said, I'm not going to go. I said, not only do they want me to go to that, but I have to go the next morning and I have to do some kind of interview. I'm not doing it. It's my weekend. So he convinced me to go. And I ended up going Friday night. I stayed out a little too late after that Friday night. And I, I didn't, again, I had no appreciation for what this was. And that has nothing to do with anything other than I was just being from Ohio and being locked into the football thing and really not focused on anything else. So I do the interview. And one of the questions from the interview is 12 people, I think, around the table. And, and I, was, I was not in great shape in terms of my head was a little was hurting a little bit and it wasn't from thinking too much. And I just didn't get a lot of sleep the night before. So they're asking me a bunch of questions, some like you are, and I don't, I assume you're not going to give me an award after this, but they were asking questions like, what do you want to do after you graduate and all? So I, I kind of was like, okay, you know, th this is all great. And I know I'm viewed as kind of a, a student athlete, campus leader type thing, of an on-ground leader for all your sentence. Um, so I'm answering the question. So the one guy says to me, um, so if Thomas Jefferson were alive today, would he be a Zoomer or would he be an imp? And without missing a beat, I just said, he'd be an imp. And here's why. And I listed a bunch of reasons. That was the last question. So I get done with that. I go home. I take a nap. I don't think about it for a while. About a month later, I get a letter. Congratulations. You're the 1989, 88-89 recipient of the Great Council Award. So that allowed me to get an extra year of education paid for. Since I was on scholarship, they said to me, you know, I was a little cynical. I'm like, I know why I won this. It's not going to cost them a dime. I'm already paid for. And of course, UVA is so much better than that. And the people there uh, are, are they're just so, so good. Uh, John Morris, I think, was the guy that headed up the committee um, for Greg Harrington. He was a great, great guy. And they're like, look, we know you're on scholarship, so we're willing to extend this for a year. So I thought maybe then I'd go to law school at UVA. I thought I, I, that that's what I'd do. I, and in the back of my mind, if I could get my shoulder right, I really want, you know, I, I was getting some feelers at that point in time. And, and I, I thought maybe I'd like to try to play at least at the next level. I did end up signing a contract with the Canadian Football League team and spent, you know, a glorious 10 days in Winnipeg, Canada um, after my senior year. And, uh, you know, try, tried to, to run that down. But I really, really, other than, you know, living in the moment and really enjoying UVA, um, trying to, to get healthy my junior year. And then senior year, again, you know, we get blown out day one on national TV by a really good Notre Dame team. And everyone's like, what's going to happen here? We beat Penn State in Happy Valley. We go 10-3, and three, win the ACC, go to a New Year's Bowl. And, I mean, just a great year, you know, great year, senior year. Um, the basketball team had a run to the Elite Eight, I think, the spring of our junior year. It was a really fun time. Uh, you guys, again, had won a national championship. So a lot of good vibes around the university um, at that time athletically. And being at Bryan Hall and University Hall, you were kind of in the middle of it. So I really, I mean, kind of had that moment. Um, graduation, I lived on Cars Hill. I lived right across the driveway from Mr. and Mrs. O'Neill. Um, in what was called Buckingham Palace. And to tell you how out of it I was, um, after graduation, uh, went to a little reception at Cars Hill. They invited my, my parents and I. My parents got in the car, drove back to Ohio. I went, hung out with my guys and, and, and girlfriends and, and basically, you know, wrapped things up and was going to just hang out for a week or two before I, you know, Went back to Cleveland for a little. I was going to get a job in Charlottesville, study for the bar, and apply for UVA Law School that next year. The Monday after graduation, there's a knock on my door, 8 o'clock in the morning. And it's the housing people. And they're coming to, to clean Buckingham Palace. And I'm like, hey, I'm still here. And they're like, you need to be out of here. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Mrs. O'Neill didn't tell me I had to leave. But I said, hold on. So I think I'm going to you know, pull this power move. Go knock on the door. Say, hey, Mrs. O'Neill, they're telling me I got to leave, but I got to be out of here at nine o'clock. And she said, yes. And I said, well, can I stay? No. She said, Kevin, I'm sorry. That's university housing. She said, I have no control over that. 
So I really, I didn't know what to do. I, I packed up my stuff. Uh, Tim Finkelstein, who was a, a very dear friend and teammate, had an apartment uh, about two blocks away. I showed up literally with my, my stuff and I said, I got to stay here for a couple of days while I figure it out. And so that's, you know, that, that was the extent of my planning. That's how immersed I was in living in the moment, much to my parents' chagrin. So when you figured out your career, then uh, what path did you go down? So I was all set to execute the plan I told you about, which was um, I'm staying with Tim. I had this, I, I was going to go back home for a couple of weeks and then come back to Charlottesville, uh, basically 10 bar, and then study for the bar and then go to law school. Use that one year of scholarship to do that. And I figured it'd be fun. All my guys from my recruiting class, but me and three others were coming back for a fifth year. So it'd be, you know, kind of hanging out with all them. Got a call two weeks after being home from Winnipeg. They wanted to sign me as a free agent. Went up there for two weeks. Got home about mid-June after that ended. And went back down to Charlottesville to start my new life as a bartender and studying for the bar. And I was there about 10 days and phone rang. And it was my high school coach. And he said, hey, I need a defensive back coach. Can you help me out? Now, St. Ignatius was a very good team when I went there. They were a great team when I left. I don't think there's a correlation there. I think just the talent got better. But they had won two state championships in 28 games in a row. Um, and I think a USA Today national championship. Um, so the more I thought about it, it's like, you know what? I've been here a few weeks and all my buddies, they're lifting, they're running, they're getting ready for the season. I can't do that. You know, I'm now outside that bubble that I used to live in, right? So um, I realized I, I didn't really have much to do other than 10 bar hang out. So I thought, you know what? I think I might want to do this. So I said to him, his name's Chuck Kyle. I said, Coach Kyle, I think I'm willing to do this, but I need three things. For I said, what's that? I said, well, I can live at home, but my folks are going to want me to do something to make money. So you got to find me something part-time in addition to coaching. He said, okay, what else do you need? I said, well, if I end up coaching there and I don't come back to law school and I stay in Cleveland, I'm going to need a job at some point. So I'm going to need your help. You know, you're going to have to, and I was kind of saying this tongue in cheek because I still wasn't sure I wanted to do it. And then I said, Hey, look, I got a face for radio. There are a lot of really attractive women in Charlottesville and I know a lot of them. So at least, you know, if I, I, I can't dazzle them with my looks, at least maybe my personality can give me a shot. With them. At Cle in Cleveland now, I don't know anyone anymore. Okay. I'm just an ugly guy coming back home. So you're going to, you're going to have to, you know, find a way to introduce me to someone. And he's like, done, you're good. So I thought about it a couple of days. I, I come home and I ended up coaching for him for four years. We won three state championships, the USA Today National Championship, decided to go to business school. I was doing that. I'm like, I'm not going back down to Charlottesville. I'm going to stay in Cleveland. So I was going to, I applied to law school at Cleveland State University and for an MBA, decided to go to the MBA. Okay. Well, because I didn't like math in college and I only took one math class, I had to take a ton of prereqs for business school. So my business school career was about a semester and a half longer than most people's. But I did that for four years, coached four years of football, three years of JV basketball, um, get to the end of that, and I'm all set to take a job. And Chuck Kyle says to me, hey, have you ever met so-and-so? And I said, no. He says, I think he does what you want to do. You should talk to him. So I do that. That guy offers me a job. Chuck had gotten me a part-time job as kind of a tutor, teaching assistant at Ignatius, so he checked that box. And the second year I was coaching, I met the girl that would become my wife. She was the older sister of one of the guys I coached. And I always feel bad about that. I was dating his sister while I was coaching him, which had to be, I would have been merciless had I been one of his friends in that scenario. But I, I met my wife at that time. She's four years younger than I am. Um, and we met, dated for two and a half years, got married. Um, I got my MBA, took a job in investment banking. Uh, in Cleveland, did that for two and a half years, really liked that, had a chance to jump over to the private equity side, did that for 13 and a half years. And then about 11 years ago, as one of my dear uh, friends and, and business associates says, I became a reformed private equity guy 
And I, I started my own consulting group. And what I do is I work with privately held companies, anywhere from startup to about 100 million in revenue, primarily in business services, light, low tech manufacturing, distribution, and healthcare services. And I work alongside them as I think that the easiest way to say it is a fractional C-level partner. So most entrepreneurs, whether it's startup to 100 million, they've got a, a lot of talent, but not enough hours in the day. And even if they have a lot of talent, I think like most of us, we're idiot savants. We know what we know really, really well, but there's other stuff that may not be as important as what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's essential to be successful. And so those people are often looking at how to outsource that. And at those smaller companies, they don't need it full time or they can't afford it. And so I bring them the ability to kind of from a private equity point of view where we invested in companies that were 10 million to 100 million and grew them to 50 million to 500 million and really understood how to build a sustainable, scalable business. I'm able to bring that mindset to them and help them navigate how to grow their business, how to achieve whatever their goal or their mission is. So that's, if you will, in five minutes or less, that's kind of the career path. No, that's cool. That's There's a lot of variety in that too, right? And you could always pivot to different industries based on whatever's going on in the economy, right? Yeah. So yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. I want to hear more about your family today. Like, so where is everyone located? How many kids did you wind up having? Um, we have three boys. Um, Recently, they've all been in Cleveland, which was a rarity. And it was great fun for my wife, Michelle, and me to see everybody together. But um, the oldest, Jack, is in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, he is entering his third year in the workforce after graduating college. Um, and he was working two years in private equity and has just moved over. I'm sorry, two years in investment banking is just moving over to a private equity group. Uh, he'll start there next week. Um, and very excited for that. Uh, middle son, Ryan, uh, is entering his second year into the workforce. Um, he is in data analytics, business analytics, cybersecurity. He works for uh, a large consulting firm um, in the Midwest. And uh, he's a Notre Dame grad. Um, he lives close enough there where he hits all the home games, which comes into play because our youngest just completed his second year at Notre Dame and uh, he's a, a member of the football team so he spends uh, he's doing the same grind that you and I did in our college years he's pretty much in South Bend you know 24-7 uh, gets a few weeks off here and there around Christmas uh, and spring break and a little bit in the summer um, but it's nice for us we'll, we have two basically in the fall who are in the same place and we try to make all those home games so we can can see everybody but uh, it's been interesting for me because I think as a parent, your view is, uh, you know, I feel bad. And if Scott doctors listening to this, man, Scott, you're shaming some of us. All right. I mean, it's like every kid goes to UVA. Right. I mean, I just I just wonder if there's some test you do for that when the kids are born. Right. And my guys, again, if I can show you pictures of the youngest and it would have been so much fun. But I have pictures of our youngest when he was three, four five years old. We used to go down to the spring game. Uh, two or three times. He's got pictures and he, he wanted to be Marcus Hagens. You know, he was, he had a Marcus Hagens jersey dressed up like Marcus Hagens for Halloween. He'd go in the front yard, you know, play football with his Marcus Hagens. Chris Long was his favorite player. He got to meet Chris and Chris was so nice to him. Howie Long was so nice. So my kids, they grew up in orange and blue. Um, and my middle one, he, he was all set to go to UVA and got into Notre Dame. And I know it was really hard for me to kind of had to sit me down and say, dad, I don't know how to tell this to you, but you know, I, I really want to go to Notre Dame. And I think um, as Scott doctor said, I think being in the Midwest and being Catholic, there's a huge pull to go there and it's such a great school. And I feel very blessed. And, and Michelle would say the same, our kids are where they're supposed to be. I think if, if our oldest who, who ended up going to Harvard, would have gone to Notre Dame, he wouldn't have enjoyed his experience as much as he did at Harvard. And I think if the other two had gone to Harvard, they wouldn't have enjoyed it. And as much fun as it would have been for the boys to be in Charlottesville, um, there were they're happy at, at Notre Dame. And, and as a parent, you know, um, you, you try not to focus on, geez, it would be really neat to be able to go to all the Virginia games because I have a kid who walked onto the team there, right? Um, 
but uh, it's it's been fun. And again, it's uh, everyone ended up where they're supposed to. But uh, there's a little bit of envy, a little cavalier envy for guys like Scott <laughs> who get to stay integrated with the school and get to. It's got to be neat to see your kids experience some of the same things you experience. And it's always fun. I think you'd agree. It's always fun to get back to Browns. You know, it's it, it, as much as it changes. It's um, I, I I love my hometown, um, and and I have just the, the greatest feelings for Shaker Heights and for Cleveland. But Charlottesville's home too. You know, just it really. Uh, it really is. And my only wish for for me is Charlottesville would have been four hours close. You know, four, Charlottesville is 250 miles away. It'd be way more convenient. So if we could get working on moving that a little bit closer to the great state of Ohio, we'd be happy here. We'll, we'll get on that. I know we got to wrap things up. I got to ask you, Bodo's Bagels, what's your favorite? Ooh, so old school, Bodo's just opened. Okay, just open. So I don't know. I, I went there when we were back for the UVA Notre Dame game in the fall. Okay. And for the record, I did not root against Notre Dame or root against Virginia. I, I've had some of my teammates accuse me of that. That did not happen. Okay. It was odd being in the stadium for that game. Though. But we went back there and the menu was way more expansive. Okay. So a couple of comments from an old timer on Bodo. There's only one. The one on the corner doesn't count, okay? It's the one on 29. That's the original. And it's an everything with turkey, Swiss, lettuce, tomato, onion. Toasted uh, everything bacon. Bam. Mic drop. Bam. I like that. That's it. That's it. Okay. And before you go, I got to ask you one more. Don't you hop off this uh, Zoom call yet with me. So you're walking back at grounds and you get an invite to go to the chapel to give impart a couple words of wisdom. You know, if they said, okay, you got a minute, tell us what we need to know. What would you say? That's not going to happen because I was banned from the chapel because when we had our Sunday meetings with tapping, we got a little carried away with candles and the new carpet. And I got a call one early Monday morning asking me who was going to pay for the new carpet that needed to be replaced when the carpet was only three weeks old. So if we could change the setting, I think I could answer that question. What, what, what I would say is my, if you will, wisdom for anyone. Um, and if you're at the University of Virginia, enjoy it. Don't take it for granted. Because um, you only go around once, and it truly is one of the unique institutions in this country for a whole host of reasons, whether you're a student athlete or just a student, um, wouldn't trade it for anything. If you're not at the university and want to get there, control what you can control. You know, do, do the best you can. It is so competitive in the world right now, and I think there's an illusion of exclusivity in a lot of schools. And some very talented people aren't getting into places they'd like to go. And to me, it's just really about control what you can control. And when you get somewhere, make an impact. You know, I, I think, you know, impact, IMP, right? And that's one of my favorite words, because I think when you get there, there's my, my aha moment came five semesters in. I think that's life. You know, I wish it would have come the first day, but you can't control that. But once you get somewhere, just try to be mindful, try to keep those those eyes open and those blinders off and just say, how can I impact this community in a positive way? Athletically, socially, academically, spiritually, however, how, how can I take this place and make it a little bit better when I leave here than when I got here? Kevin Cook, this was awesome, man. Thank you so much for joining us. You also talked about a lot of different imps and I know they're going to be listening to this. So that means we got to get you guys on the imp podcast, get some interviews, but Kev, thanks, man. I really appreciated the time and you are awesome. Tom, thanks for having me on. And again, you do a great job with this. And, and I think if they gave you a hundred percent raise from zero, you'd still be underpaid, but I, I would support that. Awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna put in for a raise to my boss. See what he says. <laughs> please, please, please do. Please do. Um, and I'll look for my stipend. I'll look for my guest stipend as soon as you get that raise. How's that? 
Awesome, Kev. Hey, thanks, Kevin, and thanks, Ib Nation. See you next time. Hey, wahoo wah. Have a great weekend. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi there, Tom here. Before I let you go, I want to tell you about my other podcast, Total Sense. As you may know, after my time as an imp, I went on to become a financial advisor. Okay, stop laughing. Don't act so surprised. In each episode, I share advice to parents about how to talk to kids about money. As a parent, I know how difficult that money conversation can be, so I hope you'll listen and find it helpful. It's Total Sense. C-E-N-T-S, as in money, available anywhere you get your podcasts.